0: Good morning, Soma. Let's open with a word of prayer to the Lord. Almighty God, how amazing is your love, Lord, your beautiful plan of salvation, of redemption, of your people, to have a people of your own. Heavenly Father, how amazing this entire plan that you had that your Son would come down from heaven to save us, we who have gone astray, we who have wandered off, we who have not paid you the honor that you are due. Heavenly Father, how great is your plan to redeem even us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to come, to listen to your word, to hear what it speaks to us, to understand just a little bit more about Jesus and what he did for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these things. We thank you and bless your holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen. I feel a little bit torn about today, actually. Um, today might be my last time to deliver the message from Isaiah. We'll have to see. Bill, Bill may toss me a a bone here at the end. Um, We'll wait and see. Um, I don't know about you, but I was reviewing all that we did in Isaiah, and Isaiah is like an old friend now. I look forward to reading what he has to say. And there's a couple of pieces in today. You know, I've always asked the question of how much did Isaiah actually know? I think we actually get some of those answers today in, in the passage. And you'll you'll see kind of what Isaiah is saying to God. And you'll understand where I you know what's what's heavy on the heart of Isaiah here. So uh, it's it's actually a beautiful piece. Isaiah's message asks for the Lord to bless Israel with a hunger for God. We look at Isaiah here and we see the great promise that God has given in his words. So let's go ahead and start. Uh, Verse 15. We're finishing up uh, Isaiah 64. Sorry, is that right? All right, sixty-three fifteen, and then we're going to go through the end of that one and go all the way through sixty-four. All right, I'll eventually get there. I am slow. I have to say um, there were a couple things that came up. This, by the way, in this passage, and um, I did a double take. I was like, wait. That's not what I read, and so I had I'm I'm flipping over to other places where this is referenced, and we're gonna talk about some of that. This is and and it gets really cool. Really cool. Okay, so we're in sixty-three fifteen. Begins prayer for mercy. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So this prayer for mercy begins with a plea that Isaiah is giving, laying before God, a plea for the Lord God to cast his gaze downwards from his beautiful and holy throne room in the heavens down to his people. And the prayer opens by asking for the Lord to act on his heartfelt feelings and his compassion for his children. And, it's almost like Isaiah is perhaps even challenging God a little bit here, is what he's doing with what he's asking. So, here in verse 16 For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. So, verse 16 here, Isaiah is saying, The Lord is our Father. And it's as though Abraham and Jacob, and keep in mind that's also Israel, do not know nor acknowledge the prophet's plea. And Isaiah remembers God's place in this relationship as the only one who can save. And so Isaiah says, You are a Redeemer. Continuing on, verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. The Lord is the one who makes us, and the Lord determines if we should honor him or not. Should we not pray that he guard us from wandering astray? Should we not pray that he soften our hearts to his perfect and mighty plan of redemption for the earth. And especially so for those of us who are his church, his representatives of heaven here on earth. How should we act knowing that the whole earth looks at us? And when they see us, they lay that upon the Lord. Our behavior is a reflection of God, on God, It's a little bit like unruly children, right? Does your mother know? Leanne, I have to restrain her every once in a while. We're we're in Walmart or something. I'm going to go tell it. No, you're not. (laughs) We're going this way. How should we act knowing that the whole world looks at us? Should we not act with unflinching kindness and endless compassion and patience? How can we act otherwise knowing what the Lord has done for us, what Jesus has done for us? Verse 18. Your holy people held possession for a little while, Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. And now comes the plea of the prophet for the people. The nation of Israel held the commission of the Lord for a little while. And now the adversaries of the Lord and those who hate Israel and the church and hate his people, and they are oppressed. And the symbol of their commission, the temple itself, is trampled down and in ruins. You can imagine what sort of conflict that brought upon the people of Israel. Verse 19, We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. The nation of Israel and the people of the living God are as those who have no home, no rest, no peace, They are led off into bondage, slaves to foreigners, just as those who never knew God, wandering in darkness, in fear, and slavery. They never had a place to worship the Lord. The Lord did not come down and reveal himself to them. And this is the end of chapter 63. The song continues on into chapter 64. Isaiah continues with his plea. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Here, the very first verse, for the sin of unbelief, the prophet asks for the Lord to come down and rend the heavens, that the Lord God Almighty would come down before his people and cause the mountains to quake in his mighty presence. That doesn't sound like a prayer of unbelief to me. That sounds like the plea of a believer asking for the Lord to make his presence known to all the peoples. Continuing on in verse 2, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. A daily and subtle mystery of the universe the boiling of water over a flame evidence of god and his handiwork before our very eyes isaiah wants god to come down and make his presence known so that the people will believe in the same way that water boils because it is exposed to a flame There is life, knowing and understanding. And life where there before there was not. From nothing a person. The very creation of God made in his image. Do we stop to praise the Lord for his plan even in times of conflict and turmoil? Isaiah asked that God make himself known to his people. Verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. The great and the small, the quaking of mountains and things we did not notice. I don't know about the rest of you, but we have a huge ant problem in our house. And we're struggling, actually, at times, to keep them like out of the pantry, and there's cinnamon spread around on the floor. And they don't like cinnamon, by the way. It, it, it's a desiccant. So when they crawl across it, it sucks all the water out of them. And, and they die very, fairly rapidly. Trick. And by the way, the cinnamon's not bad for dogs, so you don't have to worry about it if you have an animal in the house. But at the same time, it's amazing just to watch them, how they work so hard to make their homes. Sometimes in the evening when we go out and walk, the, the mounds along the road, you can see the ants just working busily, trying to, you know, blades of grass going down into the hole. Their lives are pretty amazing. Um, Something to think about. If you take the total mass of ants on the earth, it outweighs all the people on the face of the earth by about a factor of ten. There are that many ants. (laughs) The great and the small, the quaking of mountains and the things we do not notice. The blades of grass, the chirping of crickets in the cool of the evening, the storehouses of snow on the mountains with the storms of winter, the curious questions of a child trying to understand, the change of the seasons, I don't know, have you noticed that the days are already getting shorter? When we walk in the evenings, we can actually see, you know, it's, it's just a couple of minutes, but it's noticeable. It's, it's pretty amazing. The orbits of the earth around the sun, the motions of the stars, all of these things, the awesome things, great and small, done by the Lord. Verse 4. You guys have already done this one. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, and no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, you don't know it, but this just opened a huge can of worms. And about half the sermon that you're going to get today He's on this verse, all right? From ancient times, no one has heard by ear nor seen by eye the love of the Lord who acts for us. We are his children. This verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. You need to go read this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and the hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, I've already bored my CG with this one, so they can go to sleep here, but... The astute amongst you will notice that the order was reversed by Paul, right? Instead of ear, heard, eye, seen, Paul says, I seen, ear, heard, right? Now, the message is the same either way. The intent, the meaning, the message is the same either way. But the order drove me nuts. Okay. So I dug out my Hebrew-Greek to English interlinear and looked up in there the two verses, Isaiah 64-4 and 1 Corinthians 2-9. And sure enough, the prophet Isaiah says, ear, then eye, and the, pro- uh, the apostle Paul says, eye, then ear. Part of what is jumbled here is the way Hebrew is laid out. So I'm going to give you the word-for-word word from the Hebrew. This is translated to English, and you'll get a, a, an idea of how Hebrew is, is difficult sometimes to interpret. Okay, so this is word for word from the Hebrew. But even as it has been written, things that I did not see and ear did not hear, and on the heart of man... Sorry, that's the Greek. Let me back up. The Hebrew... And from forever, not have they hear, not they ear gave, I not has seen a God except you, him for waits, who for him. Okay? So you have to reassemble the words into a sentence that makes sense in English, the way we put sentences together. The Greek word for word, and all of a sudden you're, you're going to see how much the Greek how close the Greek is to English. And the difference here is the Hebrew is actually an an Asian language, all right? Um, if you read that to a Chinese person or to a Japanese person, that sentence structure makes sense to them. And the Greek is backwards, right? But the Greek, English being one of the languages that came from the Greek language makes much more sense. Listen here. But even as has been written things that I did not see and ear did not hear, and on the heart of man did not came up, how prepared God those loving him. So there's a little bit of awkwardness there at the end, but the the Greek to English is not that far off. Okay. Now, it's possible that Isaiah said his in that order to make it rhyme in Hebrew. Paul's m- makes more sense to us. Much more, it, it's much closer to English. Okay, so now I went and I started digging up all my translations in the house. I'm driving my wife nuts. I've got like eight Bibles laid out. Okay, so um, I, I started looking at other translations, and I went back to the Septuagint. Keep in mind, the Septuagint is Greek, and it's a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Short diversion here. Something I need to tell you about Greek, all right? So the Greek, when it was written down at the time of Jesus and into the rest of that century, is all capital letters. There are no spaces. There's no punctuation. And they're all just put together. And so when you look at it, you go, oh, there's the word, there's the word, this is the word, that's the word. Okay, you, you, can, you can see it, but you, you have to stare at it for a while. But like the, the verse breakouts, None of that exists, all right, in the original language. Okay, by the time John dies, the upper and lower case has happened, and spaces have been added between the words. There's no punctuation yet. The punctuation doesn't come for another 50 years or so into the future. So we have scrolls, papyrus, scrolls of the letters of the apostle Paul and John and Peter and those papyrus have punctuation and spaces and all of a sudden it's like readable now they don't have verses yet but but the letters all because and this is literally happening at the time the church is being put together so There's this fascinating thing that's going on right at this time. Okay, so I looked up the Septuagint, and keeping in mind, it's the Hebrew to Greek, all right? And from there... Where was I? Okay, Septuagint, the Codex Vaticanus, all right. Now, the Codex Vaticanus, a codex, by the way, is a book, what you would recognize as a book. They take the papyrus, and literally they sew by hand along one edge, and they sew all these papyri together, and um, it might be just one of the books of the Bible. But, and, and you would have a bunch of these, and eventually you would have what we would think of as all the books of the Bible. But even like the libraries, the great libraries, like the one at Alexandria, which got lost, by the way. And, and so we, the place burned down. I mean, you want to talk about one of the most horrifying things that could happen. You have these priceless, irreplaceable items. And by the way, the way those books got made, there was no printing press. Somebody would sit down and write by hand the entire Bible. That was actually a thing. You, you measured a person's worth. It was sort of like their, their resume or their curriculum vitae by how many Bibles they had created. And so in a lifetime, a person who was really you know, dedicated to this might have four Bibles that he had written or maybe five. That's a that's, that's huge amount of dedication to do that. You had somebody who had done one Bible. That's pretty impressive. If they were, you know, a young person, age 30 or so, that would be a huge, big deal. So you can imagine what it is when a library burns down. It's, it's just devastating, the amount of, of work that went into what's being lost at that time. Okay. The Codex Vaticanus was put together in about 325 A.D., so about 600 years after the Septuagint. Now, the Codex Vaticanus is all Latin, and what they did was they took the Septuagint and they translated it into Latin. So now you have a translation of a translation, and you want to start talking about a mess and losing what the meaning of the original was That's what's starting to happen, okay? And so people don't like translations of translations. They like to go back to the original source material and try and interpret from the original source material what's going on. All right. So then the next one you get is the Vulgate. And Jerome, one of the early fathers of the Catholic Church, actually our church, because the Catholic Church was the church, Um, Jerome was commissioned by the Pope to do a translation because they now had a complete Hebrew Old Testament and they had a complete New Testament in Greek. And so from this Hebrew and Greek, he made an all-Latin Bible. And the amazing thing to me, now this happens in 425 AD when Jerome starts this and I don't know how many years it took him, but I I imagine it took probably like five years to put the whole thing together in Latin. That particular, the Vulgate, was the de facto Latin Bible of the Roman Catholic Church until, you're going to love this, 1979. So stop and think about that. It's over 1,550 years. So, the, the work that Jerome did was really outstanding work. Okay. So, then you get to English, all right? And so I dug out my Wycliffe and looked at these same two verses in the Wycliffe. I looked it up in the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the one that was used by John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther. And I looked up the King James Version, and the Revised Standard Version, the NASB, and the ESV. And here's where it really gets interesting. Keep in mind, the message is still always the same. The meaning is always the same. In general, eyes are more important to people than ears. We rely on our vision far more We rely upon our vision far more than what we hear. When we hear things, we're always trying to interpret what we hear. And you can imagine what it is for a blind person to try and navigate in the modern world. Okay, Um, You've probably all experienced when someone walks up to you from behind, and they stop just out of sight, just behind your shoulder. But you can sense they're there. Okay, Um, this happens in our our household all the time. Um, The body absorbs the background noises, so there's a hole in the audio environment around around us, and if that person stands close enough, you can sense their body heat. Okay, and this this happens, like I said, in our household all the time. Leanne has to be within inches of me to perceive her body heat. But if she's a foot away, I can hear her. I don't hear anything, but I notice that there's a hole in the audio environment, especially like with the fans running. By the way, um, when, when we kick on the coolers the night before, we need to turn the heater off because I got here this morning and the heater was running full blast with the coolers. Oh, no. So I, I went and flipped off the heater it was the first thing I did when I got here this morning. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Okay, so even though she's about a foot away, I can hear her there. But I can see her a long ways before I can hear... Her and I know that she's, you know, long. I know she's coming long before she arrives. Okay, back to Isaiah and Paul. The Y-cliff is translated from the Vulgate. Remember what I said about translation of a translation? Actually, I'm amazed the y cliff is, good, is as good as it is. You look at the letters and you go, this is gobbledygook. But if you pronounce the letters it's immediately recognizable as English. I I have to read it out loud, and all of a sudden, it's like, that's what those words are. But you look at it, and you're going, those consonants all don't go together. I'm sorry. That, That doesn't happen. Not in English. Okay, so. Translation of a translation. Okay. The first Bible, as we would recognize, that is Old Testament New Testament together. I already talked about the Codex Vaticanus. And it was assembled about 325, all in Latin. Okay. And then the Vulgate. All right. So the Hebrew Greek has ear, eye, eye, ear. The Wycliffe and the living Bible, all right, has it eye, ear, eye, ear. All right? So they went and they took the Isaiah and they reversed it. But they left Paul alone. Okay. The King James, the RSV, the NASB, and the ESV were all ear, eye, ear, eye, uh, eye, ear. So they're, they're ones reversed. And then at that point, I, I was off and running on all the different transla- English translations. Um, let me give this part to you. King James Version was from 1611. The Geneva Bible was from 1560. Um, the King James Version, by the way, it, the reason it exists um, is uh, King James himself did not like the Geneva Bible, because it talks about, and remember, the reformers are trying to overthrow the Pope at that time. And so they don't like the Pope. And this comes out in the way that they translate. And so every time Jesus is railing at the Pharisees, this gets great emphasis in the Geneva Bible. And King James doesn't like that because they're talking about usurping authority. And so the king doesn't like this. Okay, so Wycliffe is 1395, the Great Bible in 1539, and that's readable. That, By the way, that's also the one called the Chain Bible, where there's a Great Bible that sits on the pulpit, and it's chained to the pulpit, and people could go to the church, and they could open the Bible, and they could read it, because it was in English. Um, King James 1611, the pilgrims brought Geneva Bibles with them, not the King James. Fascinating. Um, The American Standard Version in 1901, the RSV in 1952, the NASB in 1971, and the ESV 2001. By the way, the editors in the list of Of uh, people who helped put this together include R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Piper, and Wayne Grudem. Um, And that's pretty cool. Keep in mind, all through this, the Vulgate lasts all the way to 1979. So, none of these things change what Isaiah or Paul wrote. But the meaning is the same either way. When I run into these little pieces, I love it. Somehow, the struggles all these people have with these two verses and trying to make them match or do you leave them alone, to me, that reveals something about the nature of God. And I love that. And the one other thing I need to throw in here, so you have this, somehow you lose something when you translate, right? But When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he ends up quoting the Septuagint. He doesn't quote Hebrew to the people. He quotes the Septuagint. I remember when I got that, it was like, that's really, you know, Jesus is trying to tell me, I mean, he's talking to me directly. You know, you make way too much of this stuff, Al. You're not paying attention to what's important. The message. Not the words. Back to Isaiah. Verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, You are angry, and we sin. And in our sins, we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Isaiah asks the human question. Shall we be saved? When Isaiah says this, I feel as though Isaiah does not know Jesus. The Lord. That Jesus is coming, and that Jesus is both the faithful servant, and the Lord of salvation and redemption. Isaiah knows these things, but he doesn't put them together. It's as though though he doesn't have all the pieces, but he wrote it down. He knows this, and yet he still struggles with this, and he says, Lord, you were angry, we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Isaiah knows all these things, but it's though he does not put all the pieces together, like he cannot conceive of God coming down to earth to pay the price of sinful man. Verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. Here it is again. Isaiah is asking a very human question. Shall we be saved? How can we be saved, Lord? Our sins are so great, and so many. Our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He's talking sewage here. that polluted garment. Verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. Again, three times in a row, Isaiah is really feeling this. Lord, you have hidden your face from us. Our position is hopeless. Our sins have made us to melt at the hand of our iniquities. O Lord, save us. Here comes the other key verse in here that there's a bunch of pieces you need to hear. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Verse 8, now again, back to the faithfulness of the people of God. O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. The prophet Jeremiah speaks to this. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12 the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and he was working at the wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and that if that nation concerning which I had spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster. That I intend to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, In devising a plan against you, return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? Jeremiah. The Apostle Paul. Romans 9, 20 to 26. Romans 9, 20 to 26. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. One you might not think of, the prophet Job. Job 10, 8 and 9. Job 10, 8 and 9. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? All of these ask the same question about the potter and the clay. Isaiah, verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. The prayer and the plea for mercy. Do not remember our sins, Lord. Forgive us, we are your people. Isaiah doesn't answer the question how. He just says, Lord, make this happen. Verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. The devastation of the city of Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple. How can it be? The destruction, the desolation. Woe to the people of the city of the Lord. Verse 11. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. O Lord, the temple has been destroyed, the temple in which our fathers praised you and sacrificed to you. It is all ruins now. How can this be, Lord? How? Verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Here in verse 12, Isaiah closes the chapter with a human plea once again. O Lord, you make these things to happen, and will you restrain yourself? Will you stand by silently and allow this despair to overcome us? Our sins afflict us terribly. And how can this be overcome? And this closes our passage this week. We know the answer to the question that is being asked. You notice the human plea here, the prayer for both righteousness and justice, and at the same time for grace and mercy. Prayers like this make it clear to me that Isaiah did not fully know the plan of God. I want you to imagine Isaiah looking down from heaven on the day that Jesus is born. Okay? I don't know about you, I just got chills in my arms just saying that, thinking about what Isaiah was thinking at that moment. And his just celebrating and praising God To know that the anointed servant has come down from heaven to bless his people by saving them. He has come to redeem and save God's people. The anointed servant is Jesus, of course. We look at this and we know this. And how amazing is that fact? And glorious Zion is the collective God's people, the church, Jesus and his church. We are that church. We are that bride, cherished and celebrated by the Lord. We are the new Jerusalem. By the way, as I'm writing this down three days ago, as I'm writing these words, our dog is sound asleep very nearby. She is so happy in her dream that she's wagging her tail sound asleep. And her tail is on the floor. Next week, we will continue in Isaiah and Bill will bring the message. There's an awesome opening to chapter 65. And I want to hear it. So God brings judgment and then redemption. Isaiah proclaims a new thing is coming from the Lord. Isaiah didn't know what it was, but he, he says it himself. But he didn't put all the pieces together. The Lord makes the way of righteousness and justice. God is bringing in all the peoples, all the nations of the earth will come to God's holy mountain. God is wholly just. He is wholly faithful. God knows what the great problem is, the problem of sin. And God knows the only way that that sin can be atoned for, to allow the redemption of God's people, to allow the salvation of the church. God knows the one who can pay for all of this, all the sins, from eternity past through the present to eternity in the future. God knows, and God knows only his son is just and true and can stand in the gap for the sins of all God's people. Jesus is the one, the servant, the crown prince, serving at the right hand of the God the Father in the throne room, not created, not made, forever eternal. Jesus is the one that comes the servant, the son of God, the eternal king, forever sovereign, Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, your prophet Isaiah brings such profound words. Lord, we look at Isaiah and we think, this great man had all the answers but he didn't put them together he didn't he couldn't quite make that leap to understand your plan your perfect heavenly plan so divine so holy so full of justice and righteousness and grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, you come down and you pay that price for us. How incredible. How amazing. You redeem the church. You save the people of the church to be there on that last day. And Jesus, when we come to the throne room and see you seated on the right hand of the Father with the Holy Spirit How amazing will be that day as we all cheer and cry out your name. How incredible will be that celebration. How we look forward to that day. Heavenly Father, I want to go ask Isaiah, what was it like on the day Jesus was born? Did you celebrate because you finally understood how amazing how beautiful lord we are in awe lord jesus we thank you for paying that price to redeem all of us to save all of us your church to be there on that final day we thank you jesus amen